3: Hello, you're listening to The Bip Show. Bip is for business, investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group. I'm here with James Wheeler, Macro Strategist and Investment Manager at VFS here in Sydney. How are you, James? Fantastic to be here, Paul. Thank you. Uh, Joining us on the line from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Good
1: morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Will Colger. Well, uh, yeah, looking forward to this
3: one, man. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. We are through the worst of the pandemic. Uh, a vaccine in some form is on the way, uh, and our countries around the world are thinking about how they relate to other nations around the world uh, in security terms, but also in terms of trade. The future of the trade picture is the most important factor in future uh, economic growth, and to discuss the economics and uh, trade policy environment, uh, this. This week, we are joined uh, by our guest, the global head of financial market strategy uh, at Westpac, and probably the best-read and research person on trade in Australia. It's Robert uh, Rennie. Rob, welcome to the BIP Show. Thanks, Paul. Setting that. High. Are nice and high. Wow, that's I try a little bit. Okay, so look, it's been called the world's biggest trade, trade deal, um, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, is that how RCEP, we're calling it? RCEP, indeed. Yeah. Uh, what is it, uh, and does it matter?
0: Does it matter? Uh, yes, it matters, and it matters a lot. Um, so if RCEP was a country be 30% of the world's population, so 2.3 billion people. If if we were looking at it from a GDP point of view, it would be 30% of global GDP, so 26.2 trillion US dollars in 2020 terms. Bringing 15 nations together has taken eight years, nine years. It's actually quite funny because this has all been quietly going on in the background. We've all got caught caught in this doom loop of um, COVID headlines. And this has been going on quite in the background, and it's actually – it was signed at a virtual ASEAN meeting over the weekend, and it's actually really not gotten too many headlines. But it is really very interesting on multiple levels. So on the first level, we now have trade agreements between nations that didn't have trade agreements in place. So Japan, South Korea, Japan, China. So we now have trade agreements between those nations, which is obviously a great thing from a trade point of view. There's a couple of really, and this is kind of going into the weeds slightly of it, but I think you do, for us to understand the opportunity from an Australia point of view, you do do need to go into the weeds a little bit. Um, And the first area of real excitement um, within this uh, agreement is around rules of origin. So somebody asked me a question this morning, you know, explain the concept of rules of origin and maybe use an example. So let's say I'm an Indonesian bike, um, push bike manufacturer and I bring in the gears from Thailand, and I bring in the seats from uh, Vietnam, and I bring in the brake pads from somewhere else, each of those individual components um, has to have rules of origin, and each of those rules of origin are going to be different for different countries. So when you think about a collection of um, uh, uh, trading nations like ASEAN, and ASEAN plus the five that are involved in this agreement, it suddenly becomes very, very complicated, very complicated indeed. Essentially, what RCEP has done is swept aside all of those um, requirements, and basically it says you meet RCEP rules of origin requirements, and then you meet those requirements everywhere within those 15 nations. So ASEAN 10 plus uh, Japan, Korea, China, Australia, New Zealand, that rule of origin is an RCEP rule of origin, and you can sell it anywhere, and it basically requires one set of documentation. So that as a, as a concept is really exciting. Um, the next rules, and again, there's lots of sort of acronyms here, uh, regional value content. Um, so for me to say that this bicycle is produced within RCEP, you only have to it only has to have forty percent of the value of it produced within the RCEP nations, which I actually think is very, very low. So you can get a lot of that value add done elsewhere, only 40% if it's done within RCEP nations, suddenly um, the the value of content means it is produced within RCEP. Um, and then the other way that you can get product in is to say, does it change a tariff heading? And the tariff heading side of it. Is, I mean, I sit there here and look at sort of trade data very, very closely, and it's all down to four-level HS codes, harmonized codes. Um, so, for instance, um, uh, oil is harmonized code 2709. Gasoline is harmonized HS code 2710. If I can convert it from 2709 to 2710, then it qualifies. It's actually allowed into RCEP. So what we're basically doing is we're creating a a collection of nations that are agreeing new standards that allow for products to be traded within and between themselves. And suddenly it it creates a tremendous um, uh, potential amount of upside in terms of how individual nations can really trade with each other as well. I think it's a fantastic opportunity, and there's a lot of opportunity for Australia
3: here. So this has been a fascinating podcast. Um, Thanks very much, Rob, for coming. in. I you I like I, I, I literally, so, so. I literally yeah, fell asleep that, no, 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 it wasn't. If that, I, that, that is literally enough information for everybody to go away and okay. thank you Yeah, you can mark down your CPD points
2: now, guys. That's, that's that. I, yeah. if, if, I know that we're supposed to be painting, this is the theatre of the mind, but I'm just going to describe to anyone who's listening that the look on Paul's face is one of like a child who's just seen <laughs> the world beginning uh, for, for him. That the, the look of wonderment that's on his face is incredible.
3: All right. Um, so so um, my next question on this... The guys want to talk about the global macro picture, but uh, just quickly on, in terms of Australia, uh, uh, which is um, a smaller economy and a smaller yeah. part of this uh, yeah. in terms of like, uh, uh, production, output, all that kind of stuff. Um, what are the parts of the Australian economy that are likely to benefit from RCEP? S- um,
0: small, medium manufacturing. You're being in a situation where I can produce a part of something, and then have it basically uh, tariff or reduce tariffs into somewhere else within RCEP. I think there's tremendous upside there. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all go out and buy small to medium manufacturing businesses. But, I mean, again, when you sit down, you really look very very carefully at trade. We all tend to think that trade between U.S. and China is really what drives total trade. There would be more trade done between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico than between the U.S., China, U.S., Japan, U.S., Korea, et cetera, put together. There would be 50, 50% more trade done within EU 28 nations than there would be between EU 28 nations and the rest of the world. Build uh, a collection of nations that essentially have one set of rules around a product. If it is produced in Australia and it is produced to RCEP standards, it can go anywhere within RCEP, and it's the same set of documentation, and you start to reduce tariffs rates on that. That's the opportunity I can also potentially, rather than me exporting cotton or me exporting wood, 95% of rough wood exports from Australia go to China at the moment. China's got a bit of an issue. Nin- 90 how many? 95%.
3: 95
0: 95% of rough wood from Australia at the moment goes to China. China has a bit of an issue with that at the moment. They're, you know, they're… It's, we'll, it's get well, into that. Understood. Yep. we'll get yep. into that yep. later on. If I process that, if I can change the HS code, and I'm not going into the real details around wood HS codes and what I need to do to it, but if I can change that to somewhere something else, I can then uh, sell that within Asia elsewhere as a semi-developed product mm. rather than rough wood, change the HS code, get it into RCEP in the future. To me, there's a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. And I think it, it, what it does do is it means rather than being beholden to one country, suddenly we're beholden to the whole of RCEP, those 15 nations.
3: So so my, my reading on this is that you know, it, what it does is it actually incentivizes the thing that a lot of people are looking for, which is that you create more uh, industry uh, based off the primary Correct. material That's you know, so that you're not just like uh, with Uh, trees, for example, selling them or iron ore. Absolutely. You're just not shipping it directly, but you're adding some value uh, on top of the primary material before.
2: And having a more diverse market that you can can chuck it into as well. And I mean, thinking Mm -hmm. about from from an electorate and from a political standpoint as well, that Morrison and and the the electorate. It
3: it, it is the business investing and policy.
2: Yeah, I know. I've got to tick tick all the boxes. This is the P, um, that – it sort of aligns with – I think the electorate is now calling for, after what's happened with, with, with China recently, that more people are calling for things to be, A, made locally, as opposed to be depending on, on that big country up north, and the other one is to be able to have more places to sell into so that we're not so dependent on China. Correct. This aligns really well with it. It does. The opportunity is, 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 is amazing. No,
0: Now, I mean, it's, you know, you've know you got to put a caveat on, on this. It's going to take years. And to be perfectly honest, I went on the DFAT website this morning just to have a look at the detail here. The, there's 3,500 pages – of regulations uh, for Korea alone oh, good. around tariffs. All right, so you're going to have to have a PhD in... Tariff, um, and, and a lot of time, and <laughs> an awful lot of time, and defence should play a big role on this, and and the, none of these none of these things are going to change in in a couple of years, so we can talk about the benefits here. But to me, building a club, I mean, to me, RCEP uh, as a group, it suddenly becomes a club that we can trade semi-finished product within, and as long as you meet that rule of origin. Um, whatever that rule of origin requirement is, the opportunity is tremendous. Yeah.
1: I'm, just, I'm just going to jump in quickly. Rob, I understand everything you've said, and, and it all makes perfect sense theoretically and on paper. And as, and as you've very aptly pointed out, all of this is going to take a number of years. Fine. Let, let, let's, I want to actually look at the, the upside for the first time in my life of something. And let's talk about the fact... Look, look, how viable is this? Fine. It takes years and whatever else. But the, the fact that there can be potentially a market, the fact that you know the, the, rather than just pulling stuff out of the ground and lobbing it straight out, we actually add one or two steps to the manufacturing process and some value add to it and whatever else as a nation. Is there actually a market for this? Like, Is, the, is this something that, assuming you can get through all the documentation and the thousands of caveats and whatever else in all the different export markets you're talking about, just because we can, does that mean... There will be something there in in your mind, or or is this just nah? It'd be nice, but is it, really, is it really a thing? Oh, look,
0: I'm genu- genuinely optimistic that there is an opportunity here. I mean, we are talking about 30% of the world's population. We're talking about 2.3 billion people. Every time you go to Indonesia and various countries across Asia, you just look for the opportunity. Getting to that opportunity is tremendously difficult. And it really is. It's the rules of origin and accessing that. To me, um, if we can really sort of change the process... Um, here very, very fundamentally, um, then I yeah. think we have an opportunity. As I said before, um, you know, trade um, it, between the US, Mexico, Canada, uh, trade within Europe, um, you know, while it's going to take an awful long time to get to that point, I think there is tremendous opportunity there. And I think we should be looking for that opportunity. I do think for the small to medium manufacturers, for the farming community that has done it very tough, I think you're going to have to have conversations with DFAT. There is an email address on the website. Start e- emailing them and ask what the opportunity set is for me in my industry because I think that there are big opportunities here and I think, you know, we, we should embrace those opportunities.
1: That's what I was going to ask, Rob. Fine, the government has done this, you know, outwardly to, towards other nations. So, i set exists now, whatever else. Uh it's, it's now surely on the government to internalise that and incentivize local, you know, via DFAT or whatever, local manufacturers, producers and the like to get involved. I mean, you know, are they, are they on top of that at the moment? Or uh, yes.
0: It, yeah, is, I, I would absolutely okay. say so. To me, you know, if there are any small to medium-sized manufacturers that are listening to this podcast, and hopefully there are some – Get onto the website. There is a, uh, there is an email address. In fact, there's a telephone number and there's an individual that is named within DFAT that who's Presumably, sole job is to look at that. The other thing that, that, that exists here is there is a secretariat that exists behind RCEP. So this is a body that exists. It 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 has a um, a secretariat that will look at um, uh, future developments. E-commerce is one area. Um, there is a chapter on e-commerce, um, and let's face it, we need chapters. We need trade agreements that look at um, uh, e-commerce. We need chapters that look at services etc. So I think it's not just manufacturing, it's services, it's e-commerce as well. Again, I think that there's a, there's a lot of opportunity.
2: This will help us sort of segue into more of a talk about, uh, about China specifically, but it, it, everyone's main concern with it was that India... Wasn't, it wasn't and isn't a part of this, which yeah. makes China the main player on it. So yep. do you want to wheel us through the concerns on that? Yeah, or?
0: look, um, you know, is this driven? Look, is there a chapter on state-owned enterprise funding? No, there's not. Uh, surprisingly enough, mm. given that China has played a significant role in putting this together, that simply does not exist. Will the US have an issue with that? Yes. Will Europe have an issue with that? So are we going to see lots of other nations um, saying, we want to join this thing called RCEP and we mm-hmm. want to take a lot further? Um, that's not going to happen anytime time soon. I would love the new administration in the US to say, to, for us to join RCEP, we need to see this, this, this and this. Tell us what they are. Uh, I would love to see the same from a European point of view. Yep. Um, I, so, uh, you know, the fact that India is not there, but then India has found it very hard to join other trade agreements. There's a lot of other trade agreements that are sort of lying in the gutter. And one of the reasons that India did not sign or they failed, you know, was simply around the fact that India is tremendously protective of many of its industries, particularly agriculture, etc. So I think we just have to accept that India is not there, not going to be there and probably not going to join any time in the future.
3: So, look, you're at 50,000 feet um, at the moment, uh, and I want to stay there and go up to uh, uh, 80,000 when we can, but I just want to ask you one quick thing about the current recovery trajectory for Australia, right? So how do you see that working out, and how does trade uh, feed the growth picture at the moment, uh, especially with international tourism uh, and education effectively shut down at least, for another couple of quarters.
0: Yeah. Luke, I think... I mean, trade... Um, and sheer volume of trade that is going on just now. I mean, iron ore, that side of it is just staggering what we are actually seeing in China just now. The steel production, the demand for iron ore, and I'm sure we can talk about this in a minute, is just staggering. So we get very concerned about um, those other sort of meat, wine, um, I I mentioned wood, um, you know, barley, wheat, etc. They really don't sort of... um, uh, shift the dial in terms
3: of Australia's exports yeah, to and, China. So, 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 so DFAT does these uh, amazing uh, uh, lists yeah. of, uh, of 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 the dollar value of uh, each product, and and like the pages and pages of this stuff. Yep. Yeah. And when you look at that, like it is a weird pyramid, absolutely, because it is enormous on the resources side, correct and Pretty tiny on everything else, Correct. right? So, yes. so, 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 I think that's what you're driving at, right? Oh, absolutely. Which is the yeah. So, I mean,
0: the, the the value of exports to China this year um, in the products that have been mentioned in the press, ten percent. Two or three years ago, 17, 18, maybe 20%. So the volume of iron ore and the price of iron ore has picked up so much. If I actually look at – one of the ways I sort of think about this is if you look at um, the average um, bulks um, export in the last quarter versus the beginning of 2016, it would have risen by about $8, 8500000000 um, our trade surplus would be up about eleven billion, so bulks have contributed eight and a half billion of that eleven billion improvement in our the export component of our trade position within that iron ore is seven billion so i 'm not the fact that um, we 've got issues with coal we 've got issues in terms of demand for liquid natural gas et etc they don 't move the dial they do not move the dial as long as iron ore price is at one hundred and twenty bucks or one hundred and twenty five bucks or one hundred and thirty dollars or even eighty uh, well, if it was at 80 then we might start to have a bit of an issue there. Um, uh, but as long as we're talking $120, $130, um, then it basically just underscores the the net export contribution, at least from a bulk's point of view, and that's a significant driver for GDP.
3: So um, I'm going to pin you down on iron ore quickly. You, you tweeted this week that the um, Sydney Harbour Bridge – I loved this. Uh, by the way, if anybody's not following Rob uh, on Twitter, you should yeah. – Um, right, so uh, Robert Rennie. um, So um, the Sydney Harbour Bridge involved 52,000 tonnes of steel, according to Google. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the Sydney Harbour Bridge is pretty big, right? I see it a lot. uh, Can you see it from where you're sitting? (laughs) Everybody's rotating. Uh, We're actually looking the wrong (laughs) wrong direction across the harbour. Uh, Yeah, um, But... um, but but China is producing. This is staggering. This is really stunning. Three megatons, yeah. or three million tons, yeah. right, every
0: day. Yes. It's funny actually. I had a, a very astute client come to me and say, "No, I'm going to call you out on this. Oh, oh. You have made a mistake here." Now, as a strategist, what you then do is go. Oof if i made a mistake you go and check your 000, 000, 000, 0000000000 and then you go back and go no i didn't and then you try and visualize how much that is so over the last 6 months so really from june of this year china stepped on the gas really 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 stepped on the gas we were looking at 80 75 80 million tons of steel per month and then suddenly it became 90 95 million tons of um, steel per month. What are they doing with it all? Well, uh, so listen. Um, your point on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, um, fifty-eight. So that um, three million tons per day is fifty-eight harbour bridges per day. The equivalent to the fifty-eight harbour bridges of steel, two point four per hour, or one every twenty-five minutes. So look out the window. A new harbour bridge has been. How, how long have we been sitting here for? Twenty minutes. Yeah. The equivalent of another harbor bridge of steel has been, has produced been in forged China, has been forged in China what are they doing with it infrastructure construction now remember 40 50% of steel produced in China ends up in in, in physical steel in in um, you know property um uh, infrastructure etc 20 30% is in finished goods etc so there's a lot of caveats around it it's not as if they are physically building a new harbor bridge every every 25 minutes that that steel is then being used. Elsewhere, but we're seeing an incredible infrastructure boom. And I think it's, un- mis- it's, it's almost misunderstood within the market. China is importing more iron ore every single month, has done for the last five or six months, than, than Australia and Brazil put together has been producing. What happens if you buy every single ton of iron ore that is available on the market on a, on, from your regular suppliers? The answer is the price goes up and you've got to find other suppliers because clearly Australia is not going to supply all of its iron ore to China. We have other contracts in place. Brazil
3: is the same. The price goes up. So, so And then this brings us back to, uh, and I know you track this stuff uh, incredibly carefully. Um, uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, when I interviewed you many, many years ago about China. your model for um, like uh, figuring out uh, output of um, Australian... Uh, mines yeah. um, by monitoring uh, shipping volumes out of port Hedland, uh, yep. effectively um, but uh, ultimately they are uh, what we 've looked at is um, a huge surge in buying yep. and that leads to inventories, yes, which is something that you watch and also anybody who's in the commodities market uh, watches very closely as well and it can, yep. it can affect for example the fortescue Um, metals group share price um, uh, 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 in a big way. So where are inventories at the moment in terms of like stocking this iron ore um, at at Chinese ports? Yeah,
0: I mean, anyone that looks at oil markets or any other markets would sit there and say, um, uh, uh, you know, where is inventory compared with its norm for this time of year? So if I'm sitting in the crude market, I've got to understand for this week or this month of the year, where is inventory versus the average for this period because things happen in terms of de- uh, demand and supply. So the answer to your question is where is iron ore on an inventory deviation model, which is kind of the way that I um, look at iron ore at the moment. Where is port inventory at the moment? It's actually well above average. Um, and in nominal level sense, it's probably at the highest level uh, in about 18 months. Inventory rising probably says to me, well, well, I don't think if you're, a, if you're a Chinese steel company that you should actually be paying $120. The fair value for iron ore at the moment, given the deviation of, of uh, inventory to the average, probably suggests that you should be paying $90. But I actually think what's happening here is China is intentionally stockpiling iron ore because we've seen COVID issues um, out of Brazil. We're coming into the end of the year if we are going to see a weather-related issue. Um, From an Australian point of view, it normally happens in January and February as well. So I think that there is intentional rather than unintentional stockpiling going on at the moment. So what I need to do is switch off my iron ore um, inventory deviation model. So everything we knew... Over the last five years about our iron ore uh, it 's kind of different now, I think it 's kind of different now, and that is the, the reason that that is the case is we have an incredible positive demand shock going on, which is basically China is on an absolute tear in terms of steel production. It is showing no signs of abate, uh, of abating now every month when um, steel uh, from uh, when um, uh, industrial production data comes out, the first number that I look for is how much steel did they produce last month, because that really, really guides me. At some point, you cannot carry on producing an excess of 50% of the world's steel, well in excess of 50% of the world's steel. You cannot carry on you know, producing the, the kind of numbers that we are talking about. And with iron ore prices rising as much as they are, and coking coal prices rising as much as they are, you are beginning to stress the, um, uh, the steel
3: industry in China as well. Thank you for mentioning coal. Um, <laughs> Jinx, you owe me a coke. Coke, Jinx. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jinx. Oh, coking. coking. So let's talk about coking right Excellent. So, so, look, to make all that steel, yep. uh, you need uh, what's called metallurgical coal, uh, which is a specific type of coal yes. um, that burns at a different temperature. Yep. Um, and uh, it has traditionally been an incredibly strong export line for Australia because right. – uh, this stuff is very hard to find. So, yep. so thermal coal is the other stuff, which is uh, like back in Ireland, and maybe you back in Scotland, you used to burn Close on to the, in, in the... Close in, to peat. Yeah, yep. you used to burn it at a very low temperature. Correct. Um, and uh, probably what I, I used to get delivered in sacks uh, yep. to, 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 to my house in, in Dublin. Or, um, but um, the picture here is a bit different in terms of demand, Right from China, right? Uh, so here's where it starts to get interesting. Uh, well, it's already very interesting, but um, not as much metallurgical coal, yep. which is the key ingredient for making Correct. steel. Yeah, that's your carbon, it yep. strengthens the steel. Yep, yeah. Uh, not as much of that is leaving Australian shores. Yep. What's going on? What is going
0: on? Well, look, it's there's been a lot of discussion in the press around soft quarters. Uh, so China operates a soft quarter system. They basically say, as of 2017, we're going to cap coal imports to 270 million tonnes per year. Um, I remember writing about this. So every month I'll sit down and I'll look at our shipping data and I'll come up with a forecast for coal, LNG and iron ore exports. And it's phenomenally accurate. I can basically give you a forecast to within plus or minus a million tonnes for the ABS data that will be released six weeks later. So by watching shipping data, high-frequency shipping data, and watching individual ships, you get a tremendous understanding of what is going on in the market. I remember in November, October, November last year, saying, "We're going to hit our, our quotas." Why isn't China slowing down imports? November, December last year, like clockwork, suddenly we started to hear stories about China beginning to go slow. Australian um, exports of coal exactly the same thing happened this year as of June July met coal exports um, into china would have been 33% above the equivalent for 2017 so we were racing so far ahead of that quota system and we were going to hit it you know hit it and break it and clearly china has a number of factors that they are focusing on one is improving air quality etc and being in a situation where you are importing that much coal you have an issue. But the problem with that is if you don't let met coal, coking coal, come in from Australia, where do you find it? And at the moment, I watch the R between – so the export price before it leaves port from Australia for Queensland met coal is, let's say, it's 100 bucks at the moment, give or take. If you look at the um, coking coal contract on Dalian, convert that into um, US dollars, it's close to $200. There's a $100 tax on steel producers – now, I'm not taking into account kind of shipping costs, tax, uh, you know, other things like that. So it's a non scientific attempt at it. But it, it, the, the ARB there is 100 bucks, And that is essentially a tax on steel producers. Um, because China has trade issues with Australia at the moment, they are willing to fine steel producers 100 bucks, essentially, in terms of uh, production. I think it's
3: worth um, uh, just recapping what, what, what ARB is. Um, Sorry. Um,
0: So if I could find – if I had access to met coal in China, um, I could sell it to that steel producer, not at $100 where the domestic price is. If I could physically find the quantities, I might be able to sell it at the trade price for coal coming from Australia, might be, and therefore I could sort of access that – um, arbitrage. I could pocket the difference between the two. Now, Mongolia is a big exporter of met coal traditionally, but because of COVID, um, and all of that is trucked in physically comes in and thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of trucks from Mongolia, very inefficient. Um, because of COVID border closures, et cetera, um, uh, uh, Mongolian met coal into China has dropped off sharply. But you can't switch that on. You know, you've got to, f- you've got to find the capacity, et cetera. China's buying uh, met coal from the US at the moment. Um, much more expensive but basically they need that high quality carbon to inject into the um, uh, into the bass blast furnace to strengthen that steel so it's very difficult to find it and to be perfectly honest, that arbitrage is on paper there. Physically, it is not possible, and it is causing shortages.
2: Interesting. Now, speaking of China buying off the US, so your latest note, uh, which I'm going to, to reference here, which I'm assuming that you're across because you wrote it uh, just recently and it dropped a couple of days ago. We're going to put it on the Facebook page, so anyone anyone that watches it, it's Trade Policy if you're okay with us linking to it, obviously, but the, okay, it is public. Yeah, good. So it's it's a trade policy under Biden. Recommend everyone has has a good skim through it and uh, and get into it. It's a lot of it's a lot of information. It's a lot of it's 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 there's enough to talk about for many many weeks uh, around barbecues everywhere. So let's. Did you want to hit some main points on this one? Yes. Um, with regards to just what rate China is actually hitting their, their, their trade agreement with China. Yeah. Um, how much they're actually getting and then how much of world supply? I mean, you've got notes there. so
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, um, you know, being an analyst, being somebody that basically just loves looking at the numbers, um, when US and China come up with a phase one trade agreement that actually gave us numerical targets – With HS codes, you've got to really dive into the weeds and you've got to construct that basket of goods that are agreed. But then it suddenly gives you this opportunity to, every single month, look at where China is in terms of meeting those requirements. As it currently stands, if I seasonally adjust um, China's imports of all goods that are captured under that phase one trade agreement, um, China is set to meet 56%. Uh, of that basket. Now, China can turn around and say, well, we had COVID, um, we essentially shut our economy down completely for the first two or three months of this year, therefore we were never, ever, ever going to meet it. I actually think the agreement was struck at the wrong level. I remember writing a piece in January which basically ran along the lines of there is not enough energy and there is not enough capacity in the US for China to import that much energy that was in the agreement. Um, it, it was physically in, impossible for China to import that much energy. There were some ludicrous numbers in there that. There were some we, ludicrous yeah. numbers, yeah. and you're you're basically just saying, you know, China agreed at the time to get tariffs, you know, get some sort of trade agreement in place, and get. USTR off the back and sort of move on. So we were never going to meet 100%. But China is actually going to make a record in terms of its imports of product from the US. It will probably beat it by about 1%. It will beat that baseline 2017 by about 1%. And that would ordinarily sort of leave you sort of saying, well, that's that's an amazing um, outcome. But if you actually say China's – so if I reconstruct that basket of goods – Um, along the same lines from the rest of the world and ask the question, if China had struck that agreement with the rest of the world, exactly the same agreement with the rest of the world, then what would their imports be um, uh, versus the rest of the world? The answer is 20%. So China has been on an absolute tear in terms of importing a lot of those products
2: just not from the US. So you've got to – I'm looking sort of uh, just towards the top of this one. So Chinese rest-of-world imports well above 2017 levels, yep. but from US well below. So it's 15% below Correct. levels in 2017 yep. versus the Chinese global ex-US imports, which is 13% above levels in, in, yep. in 2017. Just break it down to, to, just to those real numbers. Yep. Do you want to talk about soybeans? I want to talk about soybeans. It's very um, close, very close to me. So I'll, I'll preface it, if, yep. I, if if I may, Last Rob, time. because, well, Paul – Paul has a, a story about the Colgan family, and, and it's his story that he tells a lot about the Colgan family going shopping for chicken on uh, on a Sunday, and that's his story. I've also got one story that I tell repeatedly, and that's about soybeans, being very close to... I, the,
3: I don't think I've actually even told the... Tell the, us the chicken story. The no, chicken don't. Story. Do not do tell no, no. There's a time, There's I, I a time to tell
2: the chicken story. It's not right it's now. It's not right now. Okay. okay. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to it later, guys. The chicken story, the episode, it's for Christmas. But moving on. So the, the <laughs> soybeans... So soybeans is obviously very close to, to to China, and if you understand the way that China works, if I may, Rob, sorry, just yeah, just to cut yeah, in. So yeah, points, um, points, the way that the way that China works is that is that because it's moved from being uh, the, the agrarian culture, agrarian culture, and 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 that that farming culture to, you know, that, that they had the revolution, the you know the Communist Party took over, and then they've managed to elevate the people to being a, a modern future sort of company, uh, country, company. Yeah, there you go. That was pretty close to it, anyway. But the um, and the big signpost for that—that—that's uh, that, always been a messaging for whether it's been successful or not—has been um, for me and for many people in China has been pork yes. and how often you eat pork. And yeah. there, there was obviously so a lot of people who the older generations, grandpa, he would they'd only have a pork meal maybe once or twice a year because that's how long it takes to fatten up a pig, and that's how long it takes to, you know, well, that's how long it takes to fatten up a pig. The soybeans—you you take the protein out of the soybeans and you. Uh, you know, you basically, you give that to the give that to pork, and it means you can then get more pork. So, so the idea of, of this being an amazing thing that more people have been, you know, we've moved you forwards, so and you can have pork many times a week, yep. if not every day. This is the this is the idea that we've the, the success yep. of the, the of the, of the Communist Party and what they've done in China is that they've been able to get put pork on your plate Correct. every day. So, soybeans are so important to right. that. And when the trade deal kicked in, the big the big thing that happened is that if people couldn't get Pork on their plate every day or once a week, then it would be a big failure for the Chinese. So let's run through the soybean situation, and I'm just going to let you have have at it because you've got notes there on soybeans. Yeah, at all.
0: yeah. Look, I, I mean, you're right. I mean, this is all down to protein. You urbanise, you want protein. Yep. Yeah. You know, once you start having, once you get more money in your pocket, you want that pork. I mean. That's, that's the, the, the driver here. Um, so it's an enormously lucrative market for the, um, the U.S., um, so those farming states, um, and obviously those farming states are very important from a political point of view. Um, the trade war that we had between the, um, uh, the U.S. and China clearly caught um, uh, the um, – a, a, the soybean uh, market on the hop. Um, it, you know, traditionally we've we basically seen a situation um, uh, where, um, in 2017, China would have imported about 28% of its um, uh, uh, soybeans from the US, and then we started slapping tariffs on each other and the effective tariff rate that um, the US has put on China and China has put on the US has basically, while it's dropped very, very slightly, um, you're back to pre-WTO levels. So those tariffs have remained in place, yeah. and we've said to China, you've got to import um, a significant amounts of agricultural product um, a, a, you know, so that we've got agreements in place around that, but you've left those tariffs in place. So what China's basically said is, yeah, look, we'll buy some more um, uh, soybeans from the US, but we're going to go to other markets um, such as Brazil. I mean, let's face it, soybeans can be imported from elsewhere. I mean, this has decimated the farming community. And essentially, um, uh, we've seen fiscal support for the farming community in the US as a result of this. But being in a situation where you try and force numerical targets on China in terms of importing things like soybeans, you've still got the tariff in place. To me, you're destroying jobs, um, you're destroying trade routes, and and ultimately you're making things more expensive in the US.
2: Yeah, so the the, the actual numbers of the soybeans we've got here, so I've got your note here, as of the year 2, September 17, China imported 20% of its beans. From the states for the year to September twenty twenty, that share dropped to just fourteen yep. percent, and Brazil has been the clear winner. So over, over that over that period, it's Brazil's brilliant.
0: share yeah we've gone Brazil's gone from sixty to seventy five percent of that market.
2: Yeah, I remember the FT at the time when it all sort of broke. The FT was talking about that potentially, and this is classic classic play that could have could have happened at the time. Yeah. China just 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 basically saying Ukraine, yep. that's where we grow this now, and they need it and and just to have it. The, and also the problem I didn't really mention the problem with soybeans too is that. Because it's seasonal, correct. So you've got to switch between north and southern, southern right. hemispheres but between the two. So you can go; I'll go from North America now, and then I'll go from uh, from South America at a different part of the year. Yeah, no,
0: I mean that's a, that's a very good point. So it's not the fact; I mean, the actual physical volumes of soybeans that the US is exporting to China hasn't really changed all that much. I mean, essentially, if I look at it year and year, and I look at it week on week, etc., that data is available. But it's just that um, uh, Chinese imports from elsewhere, from Brazil, have absolutely Exploded, And the issue really comes down to it's the tariff. Yep. And this is one thing, you know, the new administration in the U.S. make trade boring again, which is the uh, the title of um, that piece. Please make it very, very boring. I don't want trade to be exciting yeah. because when you disturb <gasps> trade routes, physical trade routes between different countries, you see the cost of shipping. At the moment, there's a lot of discussion in, in the physical trade market about a, a, a shortage of volume. Um, over Lunar New Year the cost of shipping a box from Hong Kong to LA, shipping it back to Hong Kong again is twice the average and it's all-time record highs. And yep. one of the reasons that we are in the situation is we have really stressed shipping markets. And shipping markets don't like being stressed. They're not designed to be stressed because the economics of it are get as many boxes onto a really, really large ship and make that as efficient as possible. Don't start start slapping tariffs onto trade because it just disturbs trade and it does terrible things. And unfortunately, we pay Paid the price in 2018, 2019, and we're probably going to pay the price again twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one as well.
2: Just, uh, I'm going to go off uh, off script a little bit here. But do you think that when the great reset sort of comes back in and all the and all the you know all the routes do start to open back up? Do you, do, do you think it'll make it a more efficient and organised sort of area? Because it, as you learn, we all sort of learned a lot about how 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 global sort of trade works and that back and forth with regards to to, to the to the flow of supply back and forth and just how slapped together it is that I've might one of the the offcuts of something that i make can actually be sold over in ohio and so i've got a truck going over there and then the truck going over there because it's going there means that I can take it back, and and we realise just how slapped together it is. Once everything does start back up, do you think it's going to be a bit more efficient going in that way, therefore potentially cheaper?
0: Yeah, look, I hope that that is the case. Again, you know, the the trade world tends to operate on very fixed routes. There's so much capacity on um, uh, Hong Kong, LA, LA Hong Kong. There's so much capacity on others as well. When you start, when you destabilise that, it causes um, uh, really, really big issues. Um, But you B- the big issue at the moment is the US, I mean, let's face it, we do not know what the uh, uh, who or what uh, will lead trade, um, economics, defence, security, etc. under the new US administration. We're not going to know for some time. Um, and let's face it, I think that a Biden-Harris administration has got lots of domestic issues that it le- needs to look at. It has a, a, a catastrophic uh, medical um, issue that's going on in the background at the moment and dealing with the domestic economic situation, uh, let's face it, the pandemic situation is going to be number one. And I think trade is probably going to be pretty low on the agenda for the Biden-Harris administration.
2: Which is is what we all hope that it was supposed to be. It's meant to be it's meant to be boring. It's supposed to be. I don't it's want to hear about this thing great. every day. Take it's it off the agenda. Exactly. Make it, make it boring. Make but it
0: unfortunately, boring. it's probably second half of next year. And if anything, the risks are that it may be become a bit more exciting again, because who do you pick as USTR? Um, how do you get that USTR pick through the Senate if you don't control the Senate, potentially? Yeah. So there's a lot of bipartisanship that uh, that needs to happen here. And I'm just not sure that we're going to be getting to a point. So my plea to the uh, US administration is please make it boring. I don't think it's going to be boring. In fact, it could probably become a little bit more exciting, uh, depending on what sort of hand grenades um, uh, the Trump administration now, chucks in Jeff, before he disappears. What
2: can he do? So you mentioned the three the three different uh, areas of law that he's been using to make his uh, his executive uh, whatever's. I'm so sick of those things. I can't even think about think about thinking about them anymore. But what in the 20 minutes that he's got left as being uh, who he is? What uh, what can he do?
0: Oh, um increase entity list um at commerce department so let's add um XYZ ABC company to the entity list. Yep. Um even potentially ban individuals um force the, um uh Chinese companies to delist
3: from US exchanges. Would you have some names that um might be in the target there for or companies that might get delisted
0: or… or, or well, look, I think that we can sort of come up… All of those Chinese state-owned enterprises or those com- those technology companies that perhaps have listed on US exchanges that but but might not be meeting exchange requirements and probably are not on a path to meet those requirements, those are the kind of names that you like would… A, I don't
2: want to… Can oh, I? Yeah, like a JD, yeah. Alibaba. I, yeah. I think that, yeah, they would yeah. probably be fairly ten, high uh, up on uh, ten cent. As well in those, in that, that that's that
3: sort of region. Is, yeah. it, uh, the, I, I, I don't I don't I don't want to do the the sharp intake of breath uh, too audibly. <laughs> to be listed on a US exchange, you need to meet
0: US exchange requirements from an accounting practice point of view. Very few, if any, of those companies that we could point to will actually have met any of those accounting practices, or will ever meet those accounting practices. Arguably, they might not. Have or should not have been listed on a US exchange. That's yeah, one of my um, little personal things. Yeah, as well. and so I think that might that's something that could um, develop. So, look, there's, there's plenty hand grenades, there's plenty landmines that I think could potentially be lobbed at this situation. And ultimately, what that then may do is make trade more of a political issue. And let's face it, uh, we still have a couple of Senate races. And then we have the midterms. And then we might have another term um, that a um, Trump administration might think about running. So is he going to make it easy for a Biden-Harris administration from a trade perspective? Or is he going to make it hard?
2: Yeah, and and so do you think? And you speculated here that he keeps Lighthizer on as his rep. Yeah, over there. I think. I do. You think he did an okay job? Or has he done an okay job so far?
0: Look, I take issue with the way that the job has been done. I think a lot of the legislation, you know, Section 232 of the um, Trade Act of 74, uh, of of um, uh, 62, uh, Section 301 of the Trade Act of 74, those those pieces of legislation were never meant for what we have done here. Um, Only Nixon... Um, cited um, uh, Section 232 um, a, for a 10% tariff and ultimately was shifted to trading with the Enemy Act. There is no sitting president that has actually done what Trump has done. Yes. This was never meant to happen, and Tizer to an extent, has facilitated that. So I, I have great issue around the way that the U.S. administration has prosecuted trade, and I do think that that tariffs... Um, have destroyed jobs. I think that um, uh, tariffs have disturbed trade lines and they have definitely increased prices. And there are multiple studies, including a great Fed study and multiple others that suggest there's somewhere in the region of 300,000 manufacturing jobs in the U.S. being shed as a result of um, tariffs still in existence. You know, I talked about um, trade between uh, U.S. Mexico, U.S. Canada, et cetera, how critical it is to um, U.S. industry, When you start throwing around tariffs on steel and aluminium, um, you destroy those jobs yeah. because for every one Iowa job in um, steel or aluminium production, there are 36 jobs, give or take, that actually use those metals in other products as well. Yeah. So you absolutely destroy jobs. And one, I think to, one to 36. I think that's what you had there. Yeah, yeah I, I that was about right. It's, I mean, it's, it's staggering. Um, so when you look back at it, you say, what were we doing from a tariff point of view? But I do, back to your question, I think Lighthizer has done a great job. Job of negotiating an agreement that looks at IP theft, force technology transfer, opening up financial system. And as long as the US, I think, can depoliticize trade um, and turn it into boring again, and every six months Lighthizer... Make, make
3: trade boring again. again. It's such yeah, a good thing, I love it. Please make yeah. it
0: boring again. But every six months when when Lighthizer sits down with Yuhu and um, Mnuchin and they talk about trade, it's not the, the confrontational issue. That's being done at the Commerce Department. It's being done at Defence. Um, it's, done, it's done within the Economics Advisory Committee, et cetera. That's where we shape policy. Take it away from trade. Yep put it back to where it should be, depoliticise trade. Um, and I think Lighthouse, uh, Lighthouse has done a good job. And to be perfectly honest, I mean, we've got to get these names through the Senate. It's going to be very, very difficult. Use your bullets elsewhere. You know, mm. Don't go for a, um, a very democratic pick for so, um, trade.
3: So, so so, tell me one thing, um, in terms of the politics of, of, of the World Trade Organisation and, and global trade. Um, do... do um the way that John Bolton, for example, would have been a controversial uh, appointee to um u n ambassador right because everybody <laughs> kind of knew what he stood for um what about Lighthizer? like is there the same kind of politics that apply uh in 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 those circles like to are there, like, hawks or doves oh, in... Absolutely, in, in, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and nationalist hawks or, or, or like, trade regulation hawks? Talk to me about it. Like, yeah, it?
0: yeah. Look, I remember reading a piece. So, um, Lighthizer, uh, when he was working for a very large New York um, firm that looks at MA and um, trade, etc., he was a partner in that firm. He wrote a piece in 2020, which basically was, um, you know, 10 years of China within the WTO, Um, And he basically used the words, I remember reading it at the time and thinking, wow, if if Robert Lighthizer ever ever becomes USTR, then we're going to have an issue here. And then in 2017, um, when Trump said, I name Robert Lighthizer, you know, you started to realize what potentially was going on here. And he basically, and I I quoted a piece in uh, in the piece that we're talking about, but he used the words that we should be imaginative, much more imaginative, much more aggressive in terms of how we deal with China within the WTO because, to be perfectly honest, China delivered a lot. Uh, uh, China uh, promised a lot, and everyone promised a, a lot about um, China's accession into the uh, WTO, but it really hasn't delivered anywhere close, um, uh it, it, what it promised so we've going to be much more imaginative and, and and again he did actually in that piece suggest that the benefits of tariffs to the US economy would be significantly offset by the costs because China was going to be a, a, you know just because of the relative flows between the US and China ultimately it would be China that would lose out there um, so, yes, there are hawks and there are doves within trade and they are you know, very, very significant um, uh, drivers ultimately for, uh, for trade policy.
2: So okay, okay. So, and I would strongly recommend again, everyone, please have a good look at that note. Um, it's on the Facebook page, and I'll be uh,
3: uh, Westpac IQ is the Westpac subscription IQ. service, uh, and it is a fantastic. Yeah, it's, yeah, free it's a heck
2: of a thing. It's wonderful. So now, can we take it back to more local issues and just try and tie it all together? So, if if this is the thing that I've always been asked, and I've I've been asked this a lot. Um, when I do my little bits and pieces, and I, and and even today with the with the and it, that that was a pretty pretty strongly worded. That's a threat. That's a threat. Oh, the, this, chi- um, the Chinese this, situation. This, this if, this if, dossier, if you make yeah, yeah. an enemy of us, then you've got an enemy. That that, yeah, that yeah. that's pretty heavy stuff, right? So yeah. so you've got try it all well, together. As
3: a, oh, but also, as a taxi driver once uh, f- famously said to me, which I will never forget: "Don't look at what people say; look at what they do." Yeah. Well. So. so
2: um, now now we've got this so we've got okay. so they're
3: still buying the iron ore they're, they're still, still buying, buying a whole bunch oil. of <laughs> stuff so yeah. so if,
2: if if we do and I, I don't know what the strategy is for China at the moment so this maybe we might be able to shed a bit of light on it maybe at least then I'd have a better answer for the for the for the media bits that I do when people mm-hmm. say what's China's play here and I and I honestly just don't I don't quite get it you've got a new president you've got Elton Road, which sort of seems to be on, on hold a bit because of the of the of the China's status in the world as being a little yeah. bit detrimented because of the yeah. because of the virus yeah. that yeah. that looks. That's starting to to dwindle a little bit now. You've got the reset deal. Are we calling it reset RECEP, Recep? RCEP. RCEP, thank you. Are we calling it the RCEP deal? Trade war still going on. As I said, new president um that that's coming in, an old president that still hasn't gone yet. Mm. You've got Morrison. Yep. And I did say today that Morrison in January, he said, I don't hold a hose with the bushfires, and he went away and then he came back, a bit controversial. You've got the state governments are responsible for handling the COVID, and he sort of stepped away from that. This is now his time. Yep. This is his test. I still say that this is his test, potentially the biggest test of, of his term, potentially of his career. This is what should, should define him. Yeah. What, what do you think? What, what, have you got any light to shed on what, what China's doing, what their end game is on this one?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, part of this, I think, is the geopolitics of uh, trade. And, it's, and maybe there's an element of hegemony going on here. Um, you know, let's face it, that uh, America first policy that, um, uh, that Trump has prosecuted arguably has left something of a vacuum in this region. Yeah. Um, and within that, we've seen the rise of China and the sort of, you know, the, the, the wolf warrior sort of policies. You know, we've definitely seen um, uh, more aggressive policy, I think it would be fair to say, in terms of how China sort of expresses it. I think that vacuum, and this is where um, Biden Harris administration, I think, is going to be interesting. Um, you know, Trump basically dumbed down and significantly remo- removed support for WTO. Um, yeah. And essentially, the WTO is sitting here floundering, even the new um, director general um, role, the um, Robert Lighthizer, basically said, no, we don't support the consensus pick for the new director general. So they basically got to sit there with no new head um, until we get through this electoral process in, um, uh, in the US. So the WTO has been significantly neutered, and we've gone from this liberal rules-based trading system that we all embrace to one-off where the US, is using its own domestic laws um, uh, to prosecute a trade war, and these are laws that should never really um, uh, have been used to prosecute uh, prosecute a trade war in the way that they have done so. So I think, you know, Australia sort of living in this position where there is a vacuum, the US has moved out of trade, they've become very insular. I think, unfortunately, we've seen a significant hardening in terms of uh, China's trade relationships with individual countries. And we've tried to sort of stick to the idea... um, of a very sort of consistent um, sort of strategic patience and consistency you know, imports from China matter for us. Chinese imports from Australia matter for China as well. We'll, we'll work together. But we've seen some fairly significant hardening of um, policy. I mean, I remember um, the tightening in um, FIRB regulations yeah. that we saw in terms of investment in um, uh, 2015. Huge property deal to yeah, sell yeah, through yeah, today exactly. as well. As, yeah, Correct. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there was the foreign interference legislation that came in in 2017-2018. There was the decision to ban <laughs> Huawei. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Australia was out there. The U.S., uh, UK's position on Huawei was: we'll get our spies to work with Huawei, and it'll be okay you know, ultimately that position was reversed, we basically said, no, we're going to exclude um, uh, China from Huawei. Um, that was a big decision. And obviously, we've got national security tests that are being developed this year in terms of foreign investment. So I think we've probably seen a hardening in terms of relations on both sides, not wanting to get too much into the uh, uh, the politics of it. And it's hard to see where that stops.
3: And, uh, and uh, like, I, I do think it's very significant that the treasurer was, uh, you know, on the front page of the national broadsheet you know, this morning saying, um, you know, th- um, we're ready to work with China. Yeah. So, um, uh, Ken, I want to ask, Ken, uh, uh, you're famously, you, you've got this, uh, you know, a thesis at the moment for, for, for 2020, and it goes back all the way to the to the first show we did which is that this idea that kind of nothing in terms of like political intervention, uh, or central bank intervention, just kind of all, none of it matters. And that this is basically a punting market. Now, um, two things. I want to get to some reader questions in a second, but I, 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 I definitely also then want to, uh, want to hear, Ken, whether like this, after this fascinating and highly detailed conversation <laughs> uh, with, uh, <laughs> with, with Rob... Get, 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 a,
1: get a moron's point of view. <laughs> yeah. No, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. someone, someone tap Ken on the yeah, shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
3: So do you still think it's take your brain out and trade?
1: Um, look, I suppose if we're talking about, you know, Sino-Australian political uh, relationships and whatever, honestly, I think it's just a massive game of slap and tickle. I, I don't think for the most part, any of this matters. I think Scomo has found you know, found something that he can lean on going down the road. It's something that he can push uh, the political agenda on locally to say, look look at the Labour Party. They're rife with, you know, Chinese spies of God knows what. They're in bed with the Chinese. They're doing all manner of things. Vote for us because we're the morally upstanding citizens. Then you've got Josh, I haven't got a clue. Friedenberg on the front page of the paper, going, "No, no, 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 we'll still do business with China because I understand that if we don't, we're royally screwed." So you know, you've you've got those two factors that you're oscillating in between, and and all the noise that you want to make about China being an enemy, or they'll make an enemy of us if if we make an enemy of them. Honestly, I mean, you know, as as your famous cab driver pointed out, don't don't look at what people say, look at what they do. Australia is still so keen, so keen for China to buy everything that they can rip out of the ground. And until this RCEP uh, paradigm comes to real fruition, where you don't have to read through 7,000 pages of documentation and and small to medium-sized manufacturers and exporters are doing what it takes to sell stuff to Indonesia and whatever else, and not just China. Until all of that happens, yeah, you're still left in the same situation, which is, please China, buy everything we we can sell to you and hopefully, you know, the, the COVID restrictions lift a little bit and, you know, international students can come back to universities and you can, instead of doing virtual tours of $10 million properties, you can come and see them firsthand and pay all cash for them, park your money under this particular mattress, Honestly, I, I think it's just nonsense. Um, I don't think a whole lot really changes. So yeah, that, that's my thirty cents worth, two cents worth, whatever.
3: A couple of bucks in that. Yeah, that's <laughs> set. And um, I, I, I think um, uh, you know um, we have an editor, Rick, um, who, yeah. <laughs> who 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 usually Get tidies work, up. Rick. Usually tidies up our, our bits and pieces, but. Um, I'm just going to make sure that Rick leaves all of that in slap and tickle slap and tickle
2: was <laughs> slap and tickle was the phrase that pays to today people, which is great, so are yeah. we going to get to some questions too? Yes I'm yes really yes sure. yes
3: yeah. um, so let 's do some uh, questions from uh, from real people, um, so irascible me, uh, who is uh, I believe an asset manager um, uh, so he uh, has a really, really interesting question. Which is that Australia has recently become an exporter of yeah. capital. Uh, and what do you think are the long-term effects on currency and asset prices if this continues? Now, this would be connected to the vast amounts of uh, retirement savings that we've uh, – Yeah. 30, like $3 trillion or so, depending on uh, how the s and P's is going. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, look, uh, really good
0: question. Um, do we have another hour um, to uh, talk about that? No, we don't. Uh, so I'll try and keep it short. Um, it, it, but part of the answer to the question gets to the fact that we've gone from an incredible current account deficit historically. We always ran a trade deficit, we always ran a current account deficit. We're now, I remember having conversations with asset managers in the US 2010, 2011, 2012. In fact, I remember going through Europe and central banks in Europe, sort of looking at me very strangely. So we're talking post-GFC, me telling them that we're seeing this enormous resource investment boom, um, a, and it's going to cause uh, pressure within the Australian economy. And they're looking at me going, well, we're trying to deal with the, uh, the this incredible financial crisis, and you're telling us that you've got problems uh, around a uh, resource investment boom. Please leave the office. Uh, and I might even get security in that situation because I think they thought <laughs> I was either stretching the truth or I was slightly mad. Um, but here we are. We've had that incre- incredible resource um, uh, investment boom. We've increased our capacity to export... Um, iron ore and liquid natural gas, and now, surprise, surprise, we're running an enormous trade surplus, and we've gone from consistently year after year after year after decade running current account deficit to one where we're actually running current account surplus. Now, from a capital flow point of view, if you're running a huge current account surplus, which is about 3.8% of GDP, it used to be the case that we ran a very large current account deficit. That basically means that there's a tremendous amount of capital flow coming into the country, and that's not really going to help the situation. So what you need to do in that situation, if you are an authority here, is make either equity or debt really, really unattractive to encourage capital to leave the country. And one of the ways that you do that is you organize your curve control or asset purchase programs. If we were in a situation where… I I
3: believe um, there is a certain… Uh, a large institution in in, in Australia that's uh, doing exactly that. Uh, funny that, but but that's exactly the point. So so in answering the
0: question, you have to understand why Australia is actually exporting the capital. If we didn't export the capital, there would be far too much. C- Uh, money coming in because we're running an enormous trade surplus. You've got enormous um, uh, Japanese investment inflow. You've got incredible equity inflow. What you basically need to do is force the curve down through asset purchase programs to make it close to zero yielding. Otherwise, you get a currency that's not at 72 or 73 cents, but it's an awful lot higher. And that does not help the recovery within the australian economy it's it's almost unhelpful so so this
3: is like i'm totally fascinated with this because for for so many years we have had this question in australia about like what where is the risky capital yep um like where are like where is where are the private dollars that are just you know building a giant plant for x or you know like for for um so so the government's had to you know set up the space program for example right yeah. um but where are the billions of dollars in private money that you need to fund that kind of thing like that so the government does it um because i think rightly sees an opportunity for australia to be a leader in a, in an important sector but like where where's where are the billions of dollars in private money that want to invest in that kind of thing and probably get a great return because, you know, Australians can build this stuff (laughs) if
0: they're given the chance. The answer to that question is that, so foreign direct investment and retained earnings within Australia, um, if I looked at that over the last year, it would be about a 60 billion inflow so there has been tremendous foreign interest, equity okay. interest coming into Australia, and that's where that you know the balance of payments needs to balance. If you run an enormous current account surplus, you basically have to export capital; um, otherwise, the um, uh, uh, the currency would appreciate, and then we really would have an issue. Now, Westpac is forecasting eighty cents for the Australian dollar by the end of um, next year. Very um, strong, very strong. That is on the basis of a weaker US dollar, and that's certainly a big part of that story. You look at the fiscal and monetary policy mix that we're uh, potentially looking at, maybe no fiscal policy through the end of this year. So does the Fed have to do more? And if the Fed does more, then we know what's going to happen to the, um, the US dollar. So that's part of that. But dealing with the capital flow, you know, if you look at sort of balance of payments Um, and trade positions being a function of savings investment imbalances within economies. If you turn sort of current account on its head and actually look at the cause of it, we had an enormous resource investment boom. We're now running a current account surplus. Unless you are going to suffer a stronger currency, you have to make um, a, a capital leave, and that's important
3: um look it's 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 seven o'clock in the evening on on the nineteenth of uh, of november uh, uh, so we we have gone way over time and rob thank you so much for um uh for for taking the time this but i do there there is one other reader question or did, I, I said this earlier reader questions yes, discuss so read. You don't read a oh, podcast. The, trans- <laughs> the transcript of this will be available after the show. Uh, three oh, weeks, well, yeah. yeah three
2: it's it's weeks. as long as the it's as long as the tariff agreement with Korea. So, what's um what's the, what's the next question? Well,
3: it's it's from Con hey. Uh who um, hey Con, Hi, hey Uh So, Con manages. Well, he used to man- I used to when I first interviewed him, he he managed six billion. The, the next time on, I interviewed man. him, he managed eight billion. Now he manages ten billion, and it's you know. <laughs> cause he, Pretty Good trader, market's gone up, mate. Um, so <laughs> and the market's gone up, okay. But nothing, um, con has to do with superannuation, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Khan, Khan, uh, yeah, inflows, uh, you know, stocks, you on? flows, good con. Right? <laughs> uh, so, so, but he has a really good question, right? If, a, if China and Australia are set for some kind of geopolitical stash, um, how many cents oh, do, oh, yeah, there is. Do, do you take oh, off the, money the Aussie dollar? Which is the first question. There's a second one, which I will but let 's go yeah
0: um, look you 've I mean
3: it depends what it involves at the moment we 've kind of got
0: a trade situation that is maybe impacting on ten percent roughly um, of uh, product, if we go iron ore then we're talking multiple cents off. Now, um, into the RBA meeting, into the um, U.S. presidential election, I was saying 70 cents was the opportunity to buy the dip, and from there, good opportunity to get set for that very big move in the U.S. dollar through next week. I was slightly surprised that we didn't see a little bit more weakness because this trade story has been ongoing in the background. But if we go, you know, we've got Metco, we've got wine, we've got barley, we've got um, meat, beef. Etc. Are all um, you know in, in 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 a state of flux as a result of it. And to the individual industries here, those export markets into China are absolutely enormous. I mentioned before, you know, unprocessed wood, ninety-five percent of that export market is China. So it definitely imp- impacts there. But at the moment, we basically know at least half of the exports from Australia plus resources are yeah. resources. And within that iron ore, now you can go make coal because you can find it somewhere else. You cannot find the tonnage of iron ore that Australia provides. 80% of China's iron ore imports come from Australia. You're not going to find 80% anywhere else. Maybe Simandou and Guinea in 2030 <laughs> might supply 10 or 20%. Um, you know those, uh,
3: those the, terrifying competitors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So are
0: you really going to switch off your steel industry because you do not have access to iron ore?
2: No. So in, summary, so in summary, that it's got to be iron ore. Iron ore is enough to really make a dent on the oh. dollar, but there's no way that China would do it. Correct. Yeah.
0: Now, you might do it for a little period of time, and maybe if I'm right, if your inventory is such that you can say, hmm... You know, we're going to have a closer look at this for a little bit of time. If you can potentially import, um, you know, we've seen the rise of VLOC, very large ore carriers. Mm-hmm. China has significantly increased. Which, which
3: um, so, um, uh, Fortescue famously has built uh, these very incredible um, um, purpose-built uh, uh, VLOCs yeah. uh, that, that go out of Port Hedland.
0: Yeah, but it's mainly, it's the it's out of Brazil, um, so, these things basically dump four hundred thousand um, tons rather than two hundred thousand tons. So, if you can basically enormously increase the um, uh, the efficiency you 're kind of halving um, the the cost of uh, of transport so it 's almost as if you 're shifting Brazil and China from an iron ore port, uh, point of view closer together. Those um, those vessels could potentially do the uh, Guinea route as well. Um, you know, depending on when that Simandu is this huge um, a, a potential mine development that starts to come on. I mean, it's essentially it's another Fortescue, You know, potentially coming into the market, but it's super 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 high quality. It's sixty five percent iron ore, so incredible quality iron ore. But that's a sort of twenty five to twenty thirty. So there is no availability. South Africa sells a little bit. Um, uh, North Korea, Iran. You know, there's a number of other countries that can potentially uh, provide India uh, very low quality. Iran, Iran
3: as a um, an iron ore. There is water. a little
0: bit, et cetera. So there's you know kind of a, a rogue state gallery of uh, of potential supply, but it's low quality, and there is absolutely no way that you can supply that tonnage. So I love the question, Con. Um, You know, can it get really, really horrible? Maybe. Uh, Big stretch of the imagination here. Um, And if it is the case that we really question it, um, you know, it's a good couple of cents. Um, Difficult to see where that lands though.
3: Um, So um, Con's uh, second uh, question uh, is super interesting, which is have we passed the peak of Chinese students studying in Australia? Great question. Now, I, I, I taught at Sydney University for a couple of years. Uh, and um the the first year uh was I probably had thirty students, and I would say ten were uh, from china uh, and then the second year I had ninety students, and I would say half of those or more. Uh, were from China Mm. and, and the marking issues were significant. So uh, this is, I I am not uh, saying anything that uh, will shock people who have followed um, uh, the, the the questions around third level education standards in, uh, in Australian universities. Uh, But uh, definitely there were, there were a lot of issues that I had to confront around plagiarism. Uh, You know, I, tell you a funny story, um, part of my marking process uh, in that second year when I had a lot of Chinese students was to um, select uh, sentences out of the copy in, that they'd put into their uh, essays. Google it. Uh, and put it into Google, yeah. and I would find multiple hits. a lot of yeah, it. Uh, they've got, and an they would, they got a program that does that now. It's and great. they would have changed a, a couple of the words here and there. Yeah. Uh, and, of course. Um, well, they're not here now. No, they're not. No, some of them ended up with uh, masters degrees. Yeah, and, uh, will it ever come? Will, will they ever they, come they, back? They were disciplined. Yeah, um, they were disciplined. But some ended up with masters degrees. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway, have, have, have we passed uh, peak, peak peak export education to China? I think there's a one word
0: answer to that question, and it's yes, absolutely. Um, you know, as I'll, as I'll China's, take the other side. Oh, really? oh, there he is. There we go. Look, as China reshores and looks at uh, opportunities from a service point of view, I do think that um, it, China building world-class universities and offering um, world-class education domestically, um, along with a lot of other services, I think that you know, that is something that we will increasingly see. Um, so unfortunately, I think the answer is yes. But can you have a different view?
1: I, I just think it's, it's a cash cow um, and one which uh, should the environment shift back to allowing for it. That is, we, we have COVID restrictions lifted and, and it's under control and whatever else. And I still think it's a couple of years away. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the lobbying locally from uh, educational authorities and the like in universities will be too great for governments to ignore and it is a cash cow ultimately not only for for local institutions but also for the government and industries around it but real estate housing and 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 all of that so uh yeah I, i think i think maybe a little too early to say that's all over
0: yeah, I mean, I guess the point that I would make in reply is maybe those um, uh, Chinese um, students are replaced by students coming from other RCEP nations, um, potentially. I think that, you know, the opportunity that we should be looking at here is, you know, is there an opportunity to take those world-class um, universities' education system and look at applying it to other nations uh, within this um, uh, within this RCEP region. So, you know, I don't disagree with the idea that um, there's tremendous opportunity here. I think potentially we may be moved on from those students being Chinese to hopefully um, Indonesian, Indian, um, you know, etc. I think there's great opportunity there, and I would certainly embrace the idea that universities here in Australia again world class top notch um, universities great education that they use you know that they use this trade agreement um as an opportunity basically to try and open up other markets as well
3: uh, uh rob you are talking my language uh, the language of uh, optimism uh uh hope and um uh, uh, true belief that uh, uh australia's products are it's difficult when yeah. you're scottish but uh, <laughs> yeah yeah the glass yeah, it, my,
2: my glass is half full in fact my glass should be entirely full Speaking of which, which I
3: think we should probably go and do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, two, two Australians, uh, an Irishman, and a Scotsman walked into a podcast studio, and they just did this oh, no. magic. Uh, magic. Look, happened. It was a really great. Uh, it was a really great uh, uh, conversation. So, uh, you can. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review uh, the show uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it really does make a difference uh, when you hit the subscribe button to us. Um, so do uh, go and hit subscribe. Uh, and you can also subscribe to uh, Westpac OQ's, uh, uh, uh Rob's uh, research, um, which also features uh, uh, the uh, – Central banking and Australian economic insights of uh, of Bill Evans too. Um, you can find us on iTunes at the Bip Show, uh, and we're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore Show, and we're on Facebook too. Just search the Bip Show. Uh, we're there uh, individually at Colgo, at James Whelan forty two, at Ken Vixler, and at Robert underscore underscore Rennie. Uh, so we love those five-star ratings. Uh, thanks for keeping it up. Um, uh, Rob Rennie um, from Westpac, uh, look, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to uh, give us a huge upload on what was an utterly fascinating uh, chat and a really important uh, element of uh, economic the economic outlook um, for the next few years for businesses, traders, everything. So thanks.
0: Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And? fun too so yeah. thank you
3: yeah yeah uh well we try to never, never let it be said i don't think that uh we don't try to make these things a little bit of fun uh ken speaking of which yes i your fun go on then <laughs> <laughs>
2: thanks mate I, i'm all is what, fun, <laughs> thanks for joining us today ken
3: anything to
1: say yeah no thank it's you. been a pleasure Th- thank you thank you and uh, thanks rob no it was good appreciate the chat and uh yeah enjoyed that one
3: Yeah, 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 it was really fantastic. James, thank you very much. Always
2: great, mate. Uh, Next week, off for me, but uh, but back on the week after that.
1: Oh,
3: really? Yeah. You're off next week? Yeah. Good for you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Um, Okay, so the show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. We will catch you next time.